Welcome to the Sabbath School Rescue Podcast with your hosts, Buster Swoops and Michael Campbell. This week, we reflect more deeply on the Sabbath School Quarterly for February 15 to 21, titled, From the Stormy Sea to the Clouds of Heaven. Let's take a look now at Christ's ministry in the Heavenly Sanctuary from Daniel chapter 7. The Sabbath School Rescue Podcast is hosted by Michael Campbell and Buster Swoops at Southwestern Adventist University. We love learning and sharing God's Word. Together, we have 18 years of pastoral experience, and now we have the privilege to dig deeper into this study. Okay, so lesson eight, from the stormy sea to the clouds of heaven. Michael, do you mind reading our memory text? Absolutely. Daniel chapter 7, verse 27, I'm reading from the New King James Version. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High, and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Amen. I, I think our podcast is done now, right? <laughs> that explains everything, though. Well, back to God's sovereignty. He's in charge, and uh, there's a uh, there's an ultimate purpose to where all of this is heading. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and we see here his kingdom and dominion, the greatness of the kingdoms of the whole heaven and earth, that everyone's going to serve and obey him. Yeah, I like this word dominion that, you know, it starts out right at the very beginning. Uh, God gave to Adam a dominion and reminded that God's kingdom, uh, that dominion is yet going to come. And we have something to look forward to. God's still there in control. Yeah, I completely agree. And so at this one, uh, for those of you who are studying your Sabbath school lesson, you might be saying, Daniel 7 can sometimes be so uh, uh, confusing sometimes. But I thank this lesson because it breaks it down wonderfully, beautifully. And so there's these four beasts that are in Daniel uh, chapter 7. And it asks this question, what is the essence of what Daniel has shown? And what is the vision about? Well, and that's a great place to start because, and it's important for our listeners to remember as we're going through the book of Daniel, that Daniel chapter 7 is a parallel to Daniel chapter 2. Yes, it is. That, that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. You know, I, I was uh, talking with some students earlier uh, this this semester of saying how God doesn't or didn't just give the Daniel this vision just to show him, uh, yeah, this is what's happening. But he's also historically accurate. Uh, mm -hmm. Babylon, you know, therefore being represented by a lion, as we're going to see coming up. There's actually lions there, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And so we see that these uh, animal characteristics actually had characteristics of those kingdoms that they represented. Yeah. And you don't have to go too terribly far you can look online but also some of the archaeological ruins of uh, babylon uh, you can go to berlin to the uh, museum island right there in the middle if any, if any of our listeners have been there there's the ancient museum that's there where they reconstructed the ishtar gate and on the gate itself and all of those beautiful dark blue tiles is this picture of a winged lion Yes, that, that, that is so uh, descriptive of the kingdom of Babylon itself. Okay. So let's, let's go through these, what yeah. these uh, four animals are and what they represent. Uh, so if you don't mind, I'll go through it. Uh, a lion, the lion is represented by Babylon. And then we have the bear, and the bear represented Media Persian Empire. And we have the leopard, which was swift, uh, that represented the Greek, Grecian Empire. And then we had the dreadful and terrible animal. And this was... Sounds scary. Yeah, I know. Exactly. <laughs> it was. Uh, it was, was uh, uh, pagan Rome. 
And so we see all these animals together, and you realize uh, this is why a lot of people said Daniel was written well after the fact because there's no way that Daniel could have been accurate with this description. But Daniel wasn't. God was. That's the only way. I, you know, it's coming back to human history that God's in control of that, the narrative of history. God knows what's going to take place. And one of the great things that we can see from the Bible is that God, I mean, one of the reliable evidences of the Bible is the very fact that God here is showcasing human history. He says, I know what's going to take place step by step through each of these successive uh, world empires. Yeah. You know, it, it's so simple to say, write this off and say, oh, there's no way God can do that. But God is doing this to tell us that we can trust him. He is trustworthy. Mm-hmm. We just have to rely on him. Absolutely. Uh, the lesson also points out that the first three beasts, the lion, the bear, the leopard, that's the equivalent of the gold and the silver and the iron. Yes. And then we have uh, then we have this dreadful animal. The, the first three, it says it's like these animals, but then um, the, the last one is so terrible, so cruel that it's difficult for them to even put that into words, what it was. And it's just this dreadful and terrible animal. I don't know what the animal was. You can just imagine some terrible, scary creature, animal, and that is basically Daniel is warning against saying, hey, there's something so bad, let's be careful. You know, uh, what's one thing about the last beast that we have to realize is that it was Mm multi-horned, and that's important because it actually leads us into Monday's lesson, which is talking about this little horn. So Mm -hmm. there's these ten horns that rose up, and there's three taken away, and then there's this one little horn that came out and that kind of, I guess you could say, took over. Well, verses 7 and 8 actually just put that right into context for us. And I I think maybe I'll just read that real quick. Yes, sir. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth, and it was devouring, breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I was considering the horns, and there was another horn. A little one coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Wow. <laughs> so, tell me, what is, what is this saying? Well, you know, that's a great question, uh, Professor Swoops. You know, as we're looking at this, this time, time, and half a time. And so in prophetic language, we see that a time represents a year. Yes. If you have a year, that's roughly 360, uh, uh, 360 days. So kind of averaging that out in ancient times because it's not quite like our Western calendar we have today uh, where they'd have to add a few more days a little bit more often than we do with leap year, but 360 days. And so you do that two and a half times, you've got... Uh, a, a time, time, and half a time, so that's two and a half year. You've got 1,260 days or 1,260 years. So how do, how do we get this day-year thing? You know, there's several places in the Bible. It talks about in Numbers. It talks about in Ezekiel. that talks about in prophecy, a day mm-hmm. for a year. And uh, this is why we'll see later on in the book of Daniel. Mm-hmm. Daniel's so stressed out because he's saying, Oh, I thought we're just talking about days here, Lord. But then he, when he realizes that it's years, this is why he passes out. This is why he faints, because he realizes the the future aspect that God is talking about. Yeah. 
I like to point on my office that I've got four. I have a few books in my office, wouldn't you say? Yeah, <laughs> just a few. Just a few. And uh, there's a prophetic faith of our fathers. There's four volumes uh, up behind me here. And, and I, the reason I find those four volumes particularly significant, the author, uh, Leroy Edwin Froome, one of our Adventist historians back yes. in the 1940s and 1950s, what he did is he went back through Christian history from the early Christian church through the Middle Ages, up through the Reformation, and even up into more modern times, that this idea of a day as a year in, in the Bible, in Bible prophecy, this is not some convenient invention uh, here in more recent times. This has been a consistent biblical principle people have used for interpreting, interpreting the Bible and Bible prophecy. So this is not too surprising that we find this 1,260 days or years in which this little horn or this, this uh, in, in this case, this uh, uh, the rise of the Roman Catholic Church, the papacy, is in the ascendancy. No, it's very true. And I, I want to switch over to now. What does this little horn do? And the lesson brings out these three things. Mm -hmm. Speaks pompous words against the Most High. Persecutes the saints of the Most High. And that's one in particular I want to talk to you about, uh, Michael. And intend to change times and law. So... In what ways did uh, the the Roman Catholic Church did they uh, or did they persecute the saints? Well, that's that's a great question. I you know I've got a number of books in my office again, some going back four or five hundred years that all are telling the story of God's faithful people through throughout Christian history who have preserved the Bible. So some people were persecuted just for reading the Bible, perhaps memorizing or sharing it. So those are the kinds of things where the, the Catholic Church during this time, it's called sometimes the Dark Ages, not because it was dark in any way, but it was spiritually dark in the sense that the common person, the average person, really didn't have much access to the Bible as the Word of God. And so that was one way in which they were... Uh, we describe this time period in one way in which the Catholic Church began to change things, first of all, by restricting the Word of God, but then also uh, another way uh, we see that is the change of the Sabbath from yeah. the seventh day as observed by Jesus, the disciples, and the New Testament by the Jews. And the explanation for that is usually given as the authority of the Church, that the papacy has the right, the power to change God's law, in this case, the Sabbath. That's just one quick example yeah. of how that's changed. And then those who did not follow or conform were oftentimes uh, persecuted, Yeah, sometimes even with their lives. You know, when it comes to change times and law, uh, some people say, well, you know, several other people didn't keep the Sabbath. But if I asked you, what's the fourth commandment? What's the fourth commandment, Michael? Keep the seventh day holy. Right. But if you look in the Roman Catholic Bible, if you just type in and Google, the Roman Catholic uh, Ten Commandments. Their fourth commandment is honor your father and your mother. And you realize that something that's happened here, which is they've taken out, you shall not have any other graven image. Mm -hmm. And they've taken that out and they moved everything up. And then they took the last commandment, which is thou shall not covet. And it has here as number nine, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not covet anything that he has. Mm -hmm. You know, so they, they didn't just change the Sabbath around. They also changed the other things because... God the, doesn't want us bowing down to anything. The the very Ten Commandments themselves. Yeah, yeah you're exactly right. Well, great example, uh, 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 Professor Swoops. So as we're looking at this, uh, I'm just reminded of 
the importance to stay faithful to God's word. And this is a warning. Daniel is seeing into the future uh, the dangers God's people are going to face. Yes, yes. And you know, some, some people get up in arms because they feel like uh, the church, the Adventist church is attacking the Roman Catholic church. No, we're attacking an ideology of, of wandering away from what God has called us to do. And that goes for anyone. That can happen inside of the Adventist church as well, which is we have to remain true to him. There's a big difference between individual people and the institution itself. I have a number of Catholic friends that are wonderful Christian brothers and sisters, but but there's a difference between that, being fellow Christians and appreciating someone else as, as a fellow brother or sister in Christ and recognizing an institution which has directly gone counter to the Word of God. It's very true. So Tuesday's lesson moves us a little bit uh, towards another different direction, which is talking about the court was seated. It's talking about how here we see this this aspect of judgment arising up, uh, especially at the end of this 1,260-year uh, period. And so it, it asks us this question, in what ways does the judgment benefit God's people? Yeah, you know, that's that's a good question because I think we've talked already in this podcast about how uh, sometimes I remember as a kid th- being really kind of scared of the judgment. Yes. But what we have to realize is that who is the judge and who's our advocate through this process? <laughs> and so when you ask that question in that way and you realize how does it benefit God's people, well, in every way it does because uh, we know where the outcome is because we know who's on our side going through this process and and ultimately, once you realize that, uh, God's people are the ones who come out on top because God is rooting for them all the way along, making sure, as long as they're faithful to him, uh, that as they go through this process, uh, there's an investigation, but they don't have to be afraid as long as they know Jesus. It's very true. And we see here that not only is Jesus not only has Jesus died to vindicate us, mm-hmm. but he's also vindicating his own character throughout this entire process. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's showing that he can be trusted, and so therefore our duty is to rely on him, to trust in him. Absolutely, you know, and I think it's important for our listeners to to know uh, that there's a couple of dates here. So this 1,260 days or years talks about the year 538. Why is that significant? Uh, well, you see here that this is this is the prophecy that God gave Daniel that Daniel was so confused about. Like, mm-hmm. what what does all this mean? Mm-hmm. And so we see here this is the period of time that it began mm-hmm. with the rebuild with the rebuilding with the decree that was sent uh, to start rebuilding Jerusalem all the way to 1798 when General Berthier actually captured the the Pope, mm-hmm. and this shows that period ending, uh, which then starts the starts the judgment there. So you have this this beginning point with Rome and everything else, and then you kind of have this, and again, this counterpoint at the very end where, uh, again, Rome is kind of in the centerfold uh, with uh, General Berthier taking the Pope captive. So you have this, it's historically documented, and then you have this judgment process that kind of begins, this end-time event. Uh, people should pay attention that that God's putting the world on notice. Once the papacy, once its time of power is over, that then there's a new era that's beginning. Yes, yes. And, it, and notice here what it, what it puts it is, this is a deadly wound, mm-hmm. but it doesn't die, right? Mm-hmm. So it's... It's like kind of an incubation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so be careful, watch. But also he's once again showing us throughout history, he's giving us warning, saying, hey, you don't have much time? Come back to me. Come back to me. 
One of my other f favorite rare books I have in my collection, my wife let me uh, purchase uh, a little while ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Michael, the, I don't know where you're going to put another book. <laughs> right, as uh, Sir Isaac Newton's Observations on the Prophecies of Daniel and the Apocalypse. Wow. First published in 1733. Just uh, actually, yeah, a lot of... People may not necessarily know that Isaac Newton, the great scientist, wrote more about the Bible than he did about science. And this is one of his last books. Actually, it came out posthumously right after you know he passed away. And in that book, uh, intriguingly to me, uh, published in 1733, he's looking at the same 1,260 days or years, saying, well, looking at the, the beginning there in Rome, that then there in the latter part of the 1700s uh, that they should expect a fulfillment of this prophecy day, year, that something significant is going to happen. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. That's why I love sharing this office space with you, being right <laughs> next door to you. I learn something new every day. All right. So uh, as we looked at that, and it even talks about the importance of Jesus there. Mm -hmm. If you didn't know this, Jesus is throughout the entire Bible and he can be clearly seen there, pointing us towards the cross, which leads us into Wednesday's lesson, which is not only was at the cross, but he's coming again. Mm -hmm. uh, Daniel seven thirteen. You have your Bible open there. Would you mind reading it for us? Daniel chapter seven verse thirteen. I'd be delighted. It says, "I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him." Who is the Son of Man uh, here, and how do you identify him? Well, that's a that's a great question once again. But this is a typical phrase that we find throughout the Bible, and this this term "Son of Man" is always used and affiliated with Jesus Christ Himself. Yes, and and you know we saw we saw him earlier. Mm -hmm. Remember there in the furnace, that's see right. one who was like the Son of. God, right? Of, yeah, that, right? that's right. So this, this, this <laughs> interchangeable thing, which is Son of God, Son of Man, this is Jesus Christ. And I like not only that it's identified with Jesus, but that we are going to actually see him when he comes again. This is something tangible. Uh, God is not some abstract thought or some force. Or God is, a God is real and tangible, and he really is going to come for us once again. Yeah. You know, speaking about... Judgment, we also see this aspect of him coming in the clouds, which is an aspect of the second coming of Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. of him coming with all of his glory to, to take us home. Oh, I can't wait for that day. Yeah, I'm with you there. So now that we're solidified in who that was, uh, now it's, it's bringing us to this other aspect in, in, in Thursday's lesson. The Holy Ones of the Most High. What happens to God's people according to the following text? Daniel seven eighteen. Uh, verse 21, 22, 25, and 27. And so I'm going to go ahead and read those for, for us now, if you don't mind. Uh, starting at verse 18, it simply says this, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Right? So forever, even forever and ever. And it doesn't stop there. Verse 21 says, I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. Uh, 25 goes on and uh, talks a little bit more and he shall speak pompous words against the most high and shall persecute the saints of the most high and shall intend to change times of law and the saints shall be given his hand for a time and times and half a time. So, so what what is all this telling us about the history of what's to come? Well, two things, I think. First of all, that 
you know, God's looking out for his people, the holy ones of the Most High, that it's not just a, a narrative of the successive kingdoms of the earth, and God does reveal that, and that's a major part of this chapter, but God doesn't forget his own. He doesn't forget his people, and so they are still the apple of his, of his eye. God cares about the, who, those who follow him. Amen. And the second point related to that is that Sometimes our, you know, God's people doesn't mean that their lives are always going to be easy either. Yeah. You know, the promise is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's never, I will always make your life easy. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I I wish it was, right? I wish too. And, you know, I'm reminded uh, as as someone as a church historian that uh, the story of the Waldenses through the medieval period. Here's a group of people that as the Roman Catholic Church became more and more corrupt, they were reformers and they decided to move further and further into the mountains of northern Italy. And as they did so, they were able to preserve their faith, able to promulgate and share the scriptures with others, train their pastors who they called barbs. And at times, for no other reason than the fact that they wanted to remain faithful to God, during the height of the Middle Ages, they were persecuted. Roman Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church, the hierarchy sent troops, hired mercenaries sometimes. They would go up, and at times they would sacrifice their lives. And, and you can go up into those Waldensian valleys, way up in northern Italy. I've actually been there. I've seen some of the, the actual caves where yes. they would hide out during times of turmoil, uh, seeking refuge literally in the cleft of the rock and even in most extreme circumstances where they would even chase them up into the mountains and some of them gave their very lives. Yeah. You know, I, I, I remember hearing uh, stories about how they sewed some of the scriptures into some of their clothes just to testify. And, and it reminds me of this, which is, I know we were making a, a, a little laugh earlier saying, I wish life was always easy, but if life was always easy, we'd get atrophied, we'd get weak. Mm-hmm. With resistance comes strength comes the vigor of God flowing in our lives because through these various trials that we go through, he makes us stronger. Yeah. You know, you mentioned them having to to be able to put the word of God in their clothes. Sometimes they would even memorize and and their barbs or their pastors. I've I've wondered, I think we've talked before about some of our theology students, if we made (laughs) them have to memorize the whole book of the Bible, or sometimes they would commit the whole New Testament to memory. That's the kind of commitment and dedication and sacrifice that that these people had to want to preserve the Word of God and put it into their hearts, and literally, if they weren't even able to preserve it physically, to to spiritually commit it to their minds, uh, because it was just so precious. As we put a wrap on this week's lesson, this is Campbell Swoops signing off. By the way, we want to give a shout out to our sponsors, the Southwestern Union of Seventh-day Adventists and Southwestern Adventist University, which has for over 125 years provided a Christ-centered education just 20 minutes south of Fort Worth, Texas. We love teaching with personable colleagues, offer quality academics, and provide numerous ways to get involved both on campus and across the globe. To learn more, visit swau.edu or check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Also, be sure to join us again next week as we continue to explore God's Word. You can make sure not to miss an episode by joining us at sabbathschoolrescue.org.